Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petrucci. And And this this is is The Science of Motherhood. Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the podcast. I am your co-host, Dr. Renee White. My other co-host, Dr. Mika Batucci is currently on mat leave and we collectively are the founders of our postpartum doula biz, mother lover biz in Melbourne called Fill Your Cup. So apart from helping mums in Melbourne with their postpartum period, we also, as researchers ourselves, love investigating about all the myths and misconceptions around pregnancy, birth and postpartum motherhood. And it would be remiss of us to not include this next guest on our podcast Professor Hannah Darlin is a professor of midwifery at the University of Western Sydney and a leading midwifery researcher in Australia with an absolutely amazing international reputation as an outstanding midwifery scholar. And it's one of these research papers that caught our eye, published in May in the British Medical Journal. Professor Darlin and her colleagues from New South Wales, Adelaide, UK and Netherlands understood that there is currently a disagreement about the level of risk that justifies routine inductions of labour when it is associated with small absolute risk differences in perinatal mortality rates, potential adverse effects for women and the variation in this and other outcomes across different studies and contexts. However, at this stage, there had not yet been any studies which examined the longer-term outcomes for both baby and mother. And that is exactly what Hannah and her team sought out to do. And I can say... You know, from someone who comes from a science background, this study was just amazing. It explored the outcomes over a 16-year period with over 470,000 participants, which is just amazing. In our discussion, we talk about you know, what is induction of labour? Why are women, you know, being offered this as a standard approach to their birth? And what I really love, and I guess this kind of comes at the crux of this entire podcast, is that Professor Dallin and I explore quite deeply around what makes a scientific research project valid and significant and we explore what types of controls and variables and things for people to look out for when they're reading and reviewing a scientific publication. 
we talk about the fact that, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are not well versed in the scientific field and and they might perhaps, you know, take a sentence out of a research publication and claim it as gospel. But what people don't understand is everything comes with context and Professor Dallin and I explore this and I think it's going to be a very informative discussion for people to listen to and in fact as I kind of (laughs) joke in the interview she gives me my next topic that I'm going to be discussing on the podcast which is essentially how does science work and when looking at papers how do you understand what is a good research project and what is a good study design and not just because it's published in a journal does that actually mean that it was high level science and other things to look out for so I hope you enjoy this episode I found it very very interesting we went macro and micro on all of the topics to do with the induction of labour and Hannah and her team did a wonderful job and I'm excited to hear about what her next projects are going to be and you will hear all about that during the interview. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Professor Hannah Darlin. How are you today? I'm really well, thanks. Look, we are here today because you have caught our eye with a publication that was published in May, I think it was, in the British Medical Journal around induction of labour. So yourself and some colleagues um, from New South Wales, Adelaide, UK and the Netherlands had a look at some data and the thing that really kind of sparked our interest around this particular study was the number of patients in your group. Can you just give us in a quick nutshell, because we're going to go back to basics around the subject topic of this paper, how many how many data sets did you have? So this is this is routinely collected data that is collected across Australia and there are several data sets. There are data sets around pregnancy and what happens in that birth event. There are data sets around all the admissions that ever occur into a hospital. There are data sets around congenital abnormalities. There are data sets around the Australian births and and deaths and the ABS data. So there's lots of data sets. And what we did is we took 16 years of all women who'd had a baby in New South Wales and we linked that with all these other data sets so that we would be able to see what happened to them during their pregnancy and birth And then what were the admissions for them and their baby following? And then we were able to kind of look at one data set and make sure that the other data set was correct and was there anything that had been missed. So it's quite a complex merging of lots of data to get a longitudinal story of what may happen after an event such as birth. And this is, from my basic desktop research, this is a first of its kind being a 16-year period that you were looking at. Over 470,000 patient groups or data sets that you were looking at, which is just amazing. You know, you would definitely, you know, my science knowledge would say you'd definitely be getting some significant figures out of out of that type of data set. So... Let's go back to basics. What is induction of labour? And I guess 
what were the big questions that you were asking when you were going into this study? So induction of labour is starting your labour off with a either synthetic medical or surgical means. So that may be putting hormones into the cervix or behind the cervix. It may mean putting a, a blown up a, a catheter into a woman's cervix and blowing that up so that it slowly stretches in the cervix. It may be breaking the waters and it may be putting up oxytocin, synthetic oxytocin called syntocin in, in our country. So there's many different ways, but the principle is that that labour is started before the woman has started her own labour. So that's the kind of generalised um, description of induction. Okay. And what are some of the reasons, you know, typically here in Australia why a mother would have their labour induced? Just for, you know, I'm just thinking of, you know, first-time mums out there who are who are offered that as, as an option. What are the types of reasons that that, that would be offered? most common reason is going over your due date. Now, that's a whole other discussion. And yeah. one of the, we actually did this study because what going over your due date means in, in um, sort of the general accepted medical terminology and what it may mean in a woman's mind are very different. And we're not talking about going over your due date as in your due at 40 weeks on a certain date that you've been calculated, but we're talking about women who significantly go over, so in, a, in Australia generally around 10 days over, one week to 10 days over is what we would call a reason for induction. And then there are other reasons such as that the baby's not growing really well or the mum's blood pressure's high. And then there's a lot of other very small reasons. Increasingly and worryingly, which is why one of the reasons we did this study, there is um, inductions for big babies. That seems we found in our research one of the one of the most common things that is being now told to women, and it's a very vague scenario of, well, we think your baby's on the big side, so let's bring it into this world before it grows any more. Mm-hmm. And then the ultrasound, the correlation between an ultrasound and an actual size of the baby is is, is often hugely inaccurate. So, yeah. yeah, I always find that interesting. It's actually on my to-do list to get someone on the podcast to explain that, you know, um, someone who actually conducts these ultrasounds I recall when I was um, having my ultrasound with my my beautiful girl there and I recall you know them saying oh you know she's she's on the 75th percentile or something like that and then they you know were tapping away at the computer and oh we anticipate her to be in this weight range based on the measurements and everything at the moment. And I recall my husband, who also has a science background too, by the way, but never went down that pathway. He was absolutely like confused at how, you know, he's like, it's 2017 at that stage. He's like, how do we not have the technology to be able to accurately interpret this data and how has no one made correlations or done studies or research and actually worked out some further information? Because they told us that, oh, she's going to be average size. She's going to be average size. She was huge. (laughs) She was so big. Do you know any further information about that? I'd love to pick your brain about that one. Look, there is, I've got to say, some ultrasonographers are better than others. Mm -hmm. So a woman who's been given a wildly different 
weight than what I felt. And I have a great um, confidence in, in how I feel and how she tells me this is in comparison to another baby if she's had it. Then I'll always go to a better ultrasonographer to get another opinion. So okay. I think we don't do enough second opinions. Gotcha. And I've seen the difference of a kilo in second opinions. A kilo. Wow. Uh, yeah. So look, it's a really interesting point. There's a lot of things that you would think would be more developed in the area of pregnancy and birth. And perhaps it's because women aren't important in the whole scheme of things. You know, I often say that if, if you know, men gave birth and, and women went to the moon, perhaps birth would be more important and the moon would be less relevant. Um, so there's a whole lot of things that, that um, are really interesting questions. But yeah, I mean, basically, you're you're looking through, you're, you're, you're doing measurements of length, you're doing circumference of the belly, of the head, of the bones of the of the leg, and then you're working it out in a formula and it's going into a computer and spitting out a, a proximity. So it all depends on how sprayed out your baby is, what kind of position, mm. well, you wait for it to stop moving. So there's so many variables in that. Okay. All right, that makes sense. And I'm I'm definitely going to get a um, ultrasonographer onto the podcast and ask some ask some hard hitting questions about what's going on in these rooms when they're measuring us up. After reading your publication, I've got a few questions around some of I think like the patient grouping and some of the findings that that you made. And I'm just going to read out. So in the results, she said over the 16-year time period, the rate of induction of labour doubled for 38 and 48 weeks of gestation and the rate of induction of labour tripled for 37, 39 and 41 weeks of gestation. And you guys made the finding that the most marked increase was observed in induction rate at or around 37 weeks of gestation. What is going on at 37 weeks gestation? Is something is something triggering in our heads or the OBs or midwives' heads and we're like, got to get that kid out? Well, that's one of the reasons we did the study because I was seeing more and more and we were hearing more and more reports of babies being induced really early for fairly you know, strange reasons. We were hearing strange stories about in the private sector in particular, which is it's got less regulation around it than the public sector around policies and guidelines that, that, you know, it would be down to things like, well, you know, I'm going on holidays next week and there's a gap in the diary now. So look, yeah, you might be 37 plus three days, but you know, your, your baby's term. So let's, let's induce anyway. And, and I think that as some research came out around some of the benefits of induction and let's be very clear, there mm. are very clear now benefits for inducing at certain gestational ages, everybody everybody started to slide further and further down and go, well, you know, why not do it this week instead of next week? And and then we thought we had some bizarre things like you know women were being given steroids, which are used to mature a baby's lungs before before um, a cesarean or preterm birth if they're very very small in gestation or very young. And they started to be doing these things like, well, we'll just give them the dose of steroids and hopefully then that will deal with all the issues we know about the lungs not being mature and, and deal. So I think that we've become very arrogant. I mm. think we have lost sight of how incredible a woman's body is and how those vital last weeks are fundamental in growing a baby's brain, in being, we now know that babies born at 37 weeks have much more 
have many more issues around educational performance, around development, child development later on in, in life. So we know every week matters. Mm-hmm. But I think on the ground, we have a obstetric workforce that says, as long as our baby's out and breathing, I've done my job. And we are not the ones that stick around for the educational issues and the development issues that are happening down the track. So I think part of our problem is we have this increasing pressure to get a live baby out at the end of the day, which is what we all want. But we've forgotten that at some point there's a balance between the ultimate benefit of a live baby and the disadvantage of the implications for that live baby in its future. Absolutely. And I think that's a great segue to one of my next questions, which was, one of the amazing results from your study was looking at the long-term effects of the children in in this study. And fact-check me on this, but I'm just going to read from there. So you noticed that they were, is it more susceptible to ear, nose and throat infections for those born after an induction of labour at between 38 and 41 weeks? There didn't appear to be anything related to like allergies or eczema or anything like that. What do you think is going on here with the respiratory-related infections? Yeah, so I think, I think, I mean, the stem behind this also comes from a couple of things that we're very interested in, which is the microbiome. Yeah. That when you're born, you're, you're seeded by your mother's vaginal um, uh, microbes, that when you then breastfeed, you're feeding the good bacteria. And so what happens when, when that interfered with either through cesarean section or through antibiotics? The other hypothesis we developed and published back in 2013 was the epic hypothesis, which is looking at epigenetic impacts of childbirth. So we are, you know, giving birth and doing that successfully is why we're all here. So surely that ancient process has evolved for a purpose. Surely the process of labour and birth has a meaning behind it. Surely it is important to help. And now more and more evidence is showing us that labour and birth actually triggers off a modulation or a, a potentially a silencing or, or an activation of our epigenetics. So I, I, I know I'm now getting a really complicated, but epigenetics above the gene. So it's the messages that get sent to your genes worth or not, in summary. Mm-hmm. And so we now know labour and birth may play, and again, it's this emerging science, so we have to be always cautious as scientists, may play a role in switching off immune responses. So one of the reasons we wanted to go look at the long-term effects is we said, well, we know that when you induce labour, we are now seeing on the ground you have more intervention. More intervention leads to more caesareans, more instrumental birth, more antibiotics because of labour being longer. So are all of those things, as a result of the induction, having an impact on long-term child health? So we looked at things, and we previously looked at this in another big study looking at caesarean section, instrumental birth and vaginal birth and certainly found a similar thing in a five-year follow-up. So we thought, well, let's look at a 16-year follow-up. And so we found, yes, ear, nose, throat, and respiratory sepsis, uh, respiratory disorders and sepsis were the biggest things. Now, they're all infected mechanisms. One of the hypotheses I've got behind that is that it is probably also to do with the high low amount of antibiotics that are used when you intervene, you need more antibiotics. The longer a labour is, the longer the membranes have been ruptured, the more times you do a vaginal elimination, you're introducing foreign bacteria 
and you're going to get temperature rises and therefore antibiotics are going to be given. If a baby's unwell when it's born or goes to, to, to the neonatal unit, often antibiotics are given because people are worried is it sepsis. So that was why we really looked at that. And that was quite confirmatory to us that this is along the lines of our hypothesis around particularly the, what we call the extended hygiene hypothesis, which is the microbiome. But the asthma, the asthma, and all the other things that we had looked at in, in another study around cesarean section wasn't, wasn't coming up in the induction of labour study. Now, I need to be really clear because I know this stuff can cause huge anxiety. It's because we had a very big sample size. Even though we took a significance of you know, 0.01, which means we wanted to make sure that we were 99% confident that what we found was real. That's in simplified language. Even though we did that, because we had this massive sample sizes, pretty much everything became significant if it was slightly different. So sometimes these are a percentage point different. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to kind of put that caveat in there. But they're showing that on a population level, perhaps we're seeing trends in a direction around health that could be impacting on society and the health system and on future health of humans. And that's what we're going to detract because nobody else has looked beyond is the baby out and is it alive and is everything okay? We wanted to go beyond that because we know when a baby's born, that's not the end of the story for the parents. They continue that through life and it's not the end of the story for the baby who will go up to be an adult. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's wonderful to see those, those results actually being looked at. So I guess, you know, as you said, the aim of the study was obviously to examine those long-term effects and I noted that the long-term health effects in terms of postnatal depression or anxiety or anything like that for the mother, they weren't published in this particular study. Are you able to comment on anything? Is that going to be in a later publication or...? We're, we're working on another study at the moment where we're looking at if you have a vaginal birth for your first baby or a cesarean or an instrumental birth, and we follow you on for three more births. We're looking at tracking that in, in that study. This was a massive study already. We almost split it into two papers because we also looked at short term. So we looked at, at, you know, the first 28 days after birth, we looked at that for the mother and the baby. So it is... Yeah. It took us three years to do this. I was just about to ask you how long, and I don't think some people realise how long science actually takes sometimes. And how long it takes to get into practice. You know, the, the study, the randomised control trial I did for my PhD on the WARMPAC trial, which I published back in 2007, has yeah. only just been recommended in the quality and safety standards in Australia as of 2021. That's how long it takes to yes. get into practice absolutely and i think i've spoken previously on on our podcast before but i'll reiterate it again because if this is someone's first time you know listening to our episodes i come from a science background i worked in wet labs and you know the the time it takes from bench to bedside is typically um, 10 to 15 years for like, you know, let's say a pharmaceutical drug. It's a billion dollars worth of research and patenting and salaries and equipment and all the rest of it. And um, it's a lot of hard work in between, you know, those man hours and people coming in and out of the research lab and all and changing, changing tact with your research as well. You know, you, you, 
kind of get a bit of information and you're like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. You know, what are we going to do with that? Let's, you know, move the question over here and let's go and research something over over that way as well. So it's an ever-evolving thing, science, which is exciting but can be frustrating all at the same time. <laughs> and then a lot of people don't realise to get published in a high-impact journal, and these are the ones that we know have the greatest rigour around the the, the way a study was done and the results that are reported, you then go through often up to 18 months, two years of dealing with, you know, at times fairly heartbreaking reviews that yeah. make you go back to the drawing board. So it is a very long, hard process. And so it should be yes. because we want with confidence to be able to come out to the public then and say, these we can recommend with confidence, these we have caution about, and these things we would say don't don't engage with because they're not of use. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the number one things that we talk about is the fact that a lot of these publications readily accessible to everyone via the internet. It may not be the full text that is free, but you can definitely see at least the abstract. But people need to be mindful of the fact that some journals are more credible than others and some things have been peer-reviewed by others within the industry and critiqued and there's a lot of back and forward going, you know, between the researcher and the reviewer to make sure that everything is hunky-dory and exactly how it needs to be and that's what makes great, great science, you know. And there's a lot of predatory journals out there which is complicating our work enormously which sound very legitimate and actually provide no or little peer review. And people think one journal is the same as another journal. And we don't have that, I guess, that knowledge around what does a quartile one journal mean? That's the top 25% of all journals. How is that different to to one that has no ranking whatsoever? Hannah, I think you've just given me the subject for my next podcast episode. (laughs) Honestly, I think, and levels of evidence, yeah level one evidence level two evidence level three. what does that mean and why is that so so important yeah absolutely i couldn't agree more i think i might have to get a bunch of scientists on and we can chat about all that good stuff impact factors and um, <laughs> war stories no that would be awesome and so i had another question around the fact that so this data set obviously had a lot more patients in the beginning and, you know, you had to kind of whittle it down to take out certain factors and variables. And one of those was the fact that you excluded women with recorded social risk factors such as domestic violence or recorded mental health disorders prior, during or after pregnancy. Can you describe why you did that for this particular study? Yeah, so it's probably good to actually start from the very beginning. Yeah, which is that our aim was to look at what other what are the short and long term implications for low risk women giving birth, and so we started off with about a million and a half women. Uh, then we excluded anyone who was over thirty five, anyone who was under twenty. We excluded anyone who had any hypertension, high blood pressure, or diabetes, or anything else that had been identified during during the pregnancy. We excluded anyone who was before 37 weeks, so preterm, and we, we excluded anyone after 41 weeks, so post-term. You know, we literally, we ended up with a third of the population doing that. So we ended up with this incredibly 
incredibly low risk population. So we were trying to remove all of the other factors we know can impact on physical health and on, on child health outcomes. So, so domestic violence, mental health can definitely impact on those things. So we were really trying to get, and it sounds so, it sounds so sort of <laughs> awful to say this, this very clean population because we're dealing with humans and each human is an individual. But we were, the reason we went about this study is because of the ARRIVE trial. It was really a stimulus. A couple of years ago, a large randomized trial was undertaken in the US. Very well done. 3,000 women, around 3,000 women in each group randomized to having an induction or starting labor spontaneously with no medical indication. And we were all quite horrified. Firstly, it ever got through ethics. I was uh, just about, I was just like thinking, did I hear that right? They signed up to be induced? Yeah, they did. Oh, and it, okay. It got, it got funded and it got ethics. And the irony is over 80% of women said, no, thank you, we're not going to be part of this study. So what you ended up with is the group of women who said yes to this study, we would say are not generalizable in science. So if if 80% of your population says no way, and then you work with the 20% who say, oh, okay, I'll give it a go. I don't really carry the way. What we're saying is they're not the same as the whole population. Yeah. To extrapolate results from a population that are really not keen on having induction and say now all women should be induced at 39 weeks is very dangerous territory. And as a scientist, you know, we would say you're always cautious about your results. So what came out of that study is set out primary, and this is another important scientific uh, thing to know. You've got a, your primary outcome, your primary aim, you've got a secondary. Your primary is what you power your study on. That's what you work your numbers out on. That is the one that you really report on. And their primary outcome is looking at it, it having a negative impact on baby, such as dying or, you know, more morbidity. And there was no difference. But the secondary outcome, one of them was reduction in cesarean section rate. And guess what? It actually did reduce the cesarean section rate in the induction of labour. Shocked all of us because that's not what we're seeing on the ground. And what did all the headlines in the media and, and the way it was twisted and misrepresented by obstetrics was we should now induce all women at 39 weeks because it reduces cesarean section. Now, that is showing you a trail of how we can take a study, which ended up with a small group of women who said yes to it, though adequately powered and then misrepresent actually this wasn't the primary outcome showed no difference so we were going this is not adding up with what we're seeing in real life so what happens when you have a hundred percent of women because you're looking at real life so when we talk about real life research we're saying not just the group that agreed to be in a study but let's look at the whole population and let's say okay well what happens in real life to a low risk cohort and that's why we ended up doing this study and we showed the absolute opposite to what the arrived trial showed. But I have to put a caveat there, as, as, as all researchers should. That was what we would call level two evidence. It's high quality, randomized. You have the same kind of women in this group and that group. And, and so in our study, you don't have that because you may have different characteristics in each group. But what you have is the whole population giving you a snapshot and other things we need to think about before we open the floodgates and say, everyone get induced at 39 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, that's horrifying. <laughs> I'm still trying to get over that. I, I wonder, you know, were the women who signed up to that ARRIVE trial, I mean, obviously they would have to have been well-informed about induction. How many were first-time 
mothers. Time. They were all first-time mothers. Okay. All which right. was enough length of their study. They, they, uh, you know, I can't, if I read the ARRIVE trial, other than the ethics and the lack of um, women agreeing to be in there and, and some of the way they conclusion, the conclusions were, they, they did a very rigorous randomised control trial. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. But you can do the best randomised control trial in the world and end up with a um, an answer that may not necessarily be useful because you haven't got all of the people that this answer relates to involved in that trial. Exactly, exactly. And so your, your data set, was that just mothers and children who were birthed in the New South Wales system? Yeah. And so, yeah. And so do you think that the results that you found could be extrapolated to Australia-wide or do we see different types of, of rates of induction across Australia? And I guess my secondary question is where does Australia sit in comparison to the rest of the world when it comes to induction of labour and why? They're they're really good questions. We can say that New South Wales could be seen as fairly similar to Victoria and to Queensland, probably less to Northern Territory, where we have higher rates of Aboriginal people. But, yes, I mean, essentially the, the distribution of the cultural groups and the distribution of private and public and socioeconomic status has represent is similar in most of the bigger states. Mm-hmm. The smaller territories, the small size you, the smaller size you've got, the more you can see variation occurring in the population. So I definitely think it's something to extrapolate. Yes, there is variation. There is um, very high rates of induction um, in New South Wales, but but even higher in Western Australia, for example. We found what really shocked us is that you know over forty percent of women were now being induced, are now being induced in Australia, 41.6% to be precise, and that compares to 30% in 2010. So in in a period of eight years, we've seen an increase by almost a third in inductions in first-time mothers. We compare to some countries like the United States, but then induction of labour is much lower in, in some other countries that have better outcomes, by the way. Than, than we do. So there is huge variation in induction of labour around the world. Okay, interesting. We are going to finish off with some rapid-fire questions, which is what I like to do to finish off these podcasts. <laughs> Keeps everyone on their toes, I think. So my first question is, what's next? What are you researching? What's in the pipeline? I'm very, very excited to see what's going to come out of your um, team's publication list next, Hannah. Yeah, and I, I have been, it's been really remiss of me not to acknowledge my amazing team. It sounds like I did this whole study. I did not do this whole study. And, you know, I've got to pay particular credit to Lillian Peters, who is a brilliant epidemiologist and slogged through many versions and me saying, let's go back to the drawing boards. Not, we're not quite got it right. And Lillian is leading the next study, which is looking at maternal health outcomes related to mode of birth. We're also leading the large national study at the moment called the BEST survey, which is the largest survey that's ever been done now of Australian women's experiences of giving birth in the last five years. We have nearly 7,000 responses to that survey. And so we're really going to be looking into that data around models of care, interventions, mental health, birth trauma, child outcomes as well, 
The other big study that we're leading now is the COVID study, the birth in the time of COVID or BITOC study. And we're doing a longitudinal cohort there where we've, we've done surveys of women who were pregnant during uh, the pandemic last year, the peak of the pandemic. We followed them up at two months, six months, and now we've just sent out the 12 month survey. And we're going to be able to track things like um, maternal mental health, um, what things helped and worked, what didn't, models of care, and also child temperament and development. So I'm working with a big team of child psychologists, researchers from Canada, for example, have done a lot of disaster research, looking at how is what is happening right now potentially going to impact on our future and what do we need to do to pick up the pieces and what do we need to learn from today that works well and what do we need to be really cautious we don't continue on that doesn't work well. And I alluded to this a bit in my Guardian piece, we're already not learning the lessons of last year in some of the things we're doing this year. Yeah, 100%. And that was an amazing article as we spoke about off air before we started recording. If anyone's keen to read more about that, I will link it all through the show notes. Just double checking, Hannah, are all those studies that you just mentioned, are they closed for participants or are there any still open that if anyone listening to this wanted to put in their data as well, as we say as scientists? Please, please, the best survey. We would love to just continue on. We've just received some funding to translate that into the six top languages in Australia so that we don't just end up with a white middle class um, survey. But please, we want to make this the biggest ever. And it is already the biggest ever, but as many women as we can answer that survey, the better we're going to be able to then turn around and take that to government. And I want to acknowledge my wonderful PhD student, now early career researcher who's leading that, Hazel Kiedel. But we're working with a poet to turn women's words into poetry. We're thinking about a screenplay. We're really wanting to start to do research that actually engages hearts and minds. And I think as scientists and researchers, we failed a little bit in that and we're wanting to rectify that. That's really beautiful. I'm looking forward to to hearing more about that. Is there a particular website or where could people sign up to to add their data or get in touch with you? We have a Facebook page and it's um, the birth, Birth Experience Study Best. And yes, all the information is on that. And I'm really happy to provide you with links and things yep. too. We will definitely have those links in the show notes. Next question, what would be, and I don't want to limit it to one, you know, top one, two, three tips for birthing mothers at the moment? You know, let's talk about now. We're in another lockdown here in Victoria in New South Wales. What would be your top tip for mums who are listening to this? I think if you're only just pregnant and you're wondering what to do, go and get yourself into a continuity midwifery care model because I can tell you already that that is clearly coming out as something that is very protective in this um, experience or a privately practicing midwife if if you can can afford to, to do that. But if you're already in a model of care and you don't have that opportunity, start to advocate for yourself. For example, as I pointed out in that Guardian article, so we need to be much flexible so advocate for yourself um advocate for what you want and um the other thing i guess the last thing i would say is we will get through this there have been some positive things come out of this pandemic the biggest surprise for us was the postnatal positive of not having too many visitors in the hospital and at home afterwards and women and midwives told us clearly there was a bubble happening there and 
you know, partners talked about falling in love more with each other and they looked back and thought, why did we ever brush everybody into that postnatal bubble before? So I hope we take some of these positive lessons and we start to cherish those first hours and weeks of a new baby in a family as well. I can 100% attest to that. A lot of our mums that we've been looking after through our postpartum in-home care have all just said it has been such a blessing in disguise. You know, the corridors and the birthing suites and afterwards have been quiet. They're able to focus more on rest and, you know, having that bonding time with just the immediate family. And also for women who wanted to establish breastfeeding, it's been a lot easier for them because they've just had time to kind of, you know, be naked in their room if they want to and not have to worry about, you know, oh, the mother-in-law's coming in or whatever and they've got to, you know, entertain other people um so yeah all the time you know with hair and makeup done because they get you they can just chill yes exactly exactly what is your or do you have a go-to resource whether it be a book or a workshop for for newborn mothers uh, look, I love anything written by Rhea Dempsey. Um, I think she's amazing, particularly around her, her, her work around confidence, you know, birthing with confidence and, and helping women to work through their fears. I think that Raising Children is a, is a website that I have actually edited all their pregnancy and birth co- content. So I feel fairly confident that's actually presented really well. And I like it because they've also got these great videos that women talk about their experience. In the US, um, Childbirth Connection is brilliant for synthesizing complex research to come up with, you know, with tips, strategies and, you know, one pages for women. Um, the Australian Breastfeeding Association, fantastic organization. I completely, I'm endorsing so many. I don't want to. Yeah. If we've anyone. missed you off the list, don't be offended. I guess jump straight to Yeah, that's okay. I did say one, two or three. So for anyone out there, we're, we're not leaving you off the list on, on purpose. <laughs> and our final question, which we ask all of our guests, what do you keep on your bedside table? Me? Myself? Yeah. Yep. Um, my Kindle, my Kindle, um, my clock and my phone. Isn't that sad? <laughs> no. Not at all. What are you What are you reading on your Kindle at the moment, if you don't mind me asking? Well, to be very honest, right at the moment, I'm listening to audio books. Ah. And in my job, I read and do Zooms all day. And I got to a point where it wasn't pleasure anymore. And I've just finished The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart and highly recommend that. Okay. I'll put that on the list. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much for your time, Professor Hannah Darlin. It has been an absolute pleasure. I'm so excited to see what's going to come out next from your publications and your research. And for all those listening, we will have links to all of those studies. So if you'd like to get involved, you will have those links on our website. But thank you again, Hannah, for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our Fill Your Freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.